Welcome to the Life Lessons Podcast. I'm Jen Stevens. I'm a retired teacher, the author of several books, including the New York Times bestseller, Fast Feast Repeat, and I love nothing more than building community. And I'm Sherry Bullock. I've spent my life helping others through my work in healthcare and as a volunteer for various organizations. We are friends who share a love of learning, problem solving, and bringing people together. Each week, join us as we share inspiring stories and bring you new ideas designed to help you live your best life. So now let's learn something new, get inspired, and have some fun. everybody. We are so glad you're here today. Welcome to this week's episode of the Life Lessons Podcast. How are you doing today, Sherry? I'm doing great. The sun is shining. That is true. It's still Took a Miss Lulu on a walk, which means it's warmer than it has been. It's 57 today. Okay. Well, that's pretty good. It's it's 54 here right Not now. So. Yesterday, Eric told me it was really warm outside. And I'm like, is it? And he's like, yeah. And I looked, it was 41 degrees. Well, it got down to 18 here. How cold did it get there? Oh, I don't know, like four, four degrees. Was that with wind chill or actually literally four? No, it literally got like four okay. degrees. Our wind chill zero. was five. Okay. Oh, we were like negative nine okay. or something. Well, I don't know. our pipes in our bathroom froze. Oh, no. At the end of it, they didn't bust. Oh, that's good. But for two days, you couldn't turn on the shower. You could still flush the toilet. It's that end of the hall bathroom at the beach house. Uh-huh. But the, the yeah. shower wouldn't come on. And like around the drain, you could actually see ice. Well, because you've got that carport underneath it. So it's not well insulated. It's, yeah, because the beach house is raised. So, yeah. I was just really glad nothing else popped because everybody all around the area was having major water problems. So. Were they? And we also learned that heat pumps are not good. I have never lived anywhere cold without a gas furnace until uh-huh. now. <laughs> yeah. That's what was in this house until I replaced it. You had a heat pump for the yes, heat. Yes. And we're on a concrete slab. Oh, those are freezing. And so those are cold anyways. And yeah. we have tile floors. So it's not like we have carpet. So yeah. it was like so cold all the time. And when we switched out and I got a gas furnace last winter was our first year with it. It's, I was it's like, the only way to stay oh, warm. Yeah. But yes. we don't have any gas available. So that's the problem. There's no gas here at the beach. You can't get it. Is it because it's a hurricane? I don't know risk why. Or? I have no idea why there, but we do not have natural gas. You have to go inland to get natural gas. I bet it's a hurricane thing. It must be. They don't want you to have busted gas lines. I guess so. But some houses have propane tanks, which seems like a really bad idea because they would like float away. I don't know. <laughs> well, I imagine there's a way they can turn the gas off Maybe. so it's not like open to the house. Maybe. But anyway, it's a bummer that we can't get it because heat pumps do not heat a, a shut house. Off valve. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah, no. Heat pumps don't if it's cold. Like you're not going to find heat pumps up in Kansas City. No, I keep getting messages from my thermostat that something's wrong with my heat pump. I'm like, no, it's not. It's just really cold. Yeah. Well, a lot of times if you have a heat pump, you have like a backup heat source and you you can turn it on emergency heat. So my house, this house did have a gas furnace up in the attic that was really old. Yeah. And if I turned it on emergency heat, it would kick on. But it was also really old and I hadn't had it checked. So I was always worried that it could be like a carbon monoxide oh, hazard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I didn't yeah. really use it. 
But yeah, no, gas heat's so much better. But I hope this really cold Arctic blast we all had is over. I mean, even people in Florida were complaining about how cold it was. Yeah. I just do not like the cold. Nope. Well, my husband's still hoping for snow. Well, I like snow. But you know what? It doesn't have to be 18 to see snow. Exactly. I'll take snow at 31. Exactly. <laughs> it's my favorite kind of snow. All the people in Canada and the northern United States, they're all laughing at us now. Sorry, y'all. We're Southerners. We can't help it. <laughs> what was that meme? You saw that meme going around that said, and it was for, for around here, it was like, to the Southerners, stay home. Don't go out. To the Northerners, you're going to need your big coat. <laughs> I didn't see that. Yeah. I didn't see that. Yeah. Somebody in Florida I know posted this thing on Facebook about surviving the cold weather in Florida. And she was like, it's time to put your flip-flops away and yeah. wear socks. Do not wear socks with flip-flops. Go ahead and put closed-toe shoes on. <laughs> <laughs> you know me. I just put my Uggs on once the flip-flops are, yep. are no longer working. I live I'm in my the same way. <laughs> Got the them same on today. <laughs> Well, now it's time for our weekly good news segment. And my coworker shared this with me. She lives in Gardendale, Alabama. And y'all, if you don't send me your good news stories, you're going to keep getting them from Alabama because I'm going to start sharing them from my community. And my friends at work are always sharing them with me from their community. So you're going to learn a lot about Alabama unless you want to share me some good news stories from your life. So several weeks ago, she had shared a GoFundMe on her Facebook page, and I saw it for a teenager named Ian Vincent, and he works at the local Buffalo Wild Wings, and her kids both worked there in high school and college. So he works 40 hours per week to help support his family, and he goes to high school full-time as a senior. He doesn't have any transportation. And he was walking over two miles to work each way and walking one and a half miles to school. And he had been doing that for two years. His coworker says he never misses a day at work. He's always there. He's always there on time. And so two of his coworkers decided that they wanted to gift him a car for Christmas. And they really weren't sure how they were going to do it, but they started by using a GoFundMe. And as that grew attention on social media, it caught the eye of a local woman named Lisa Easterwood. And a few years ago, Lisa was going through her own hard times. And at that time, she ended up buying a used car. And now that she has come through that difficult time and was gifted a new car by her husband this past summer, she knew she wanted to pass that car on to somebody else who was going through a hard time. And she just held on to it, waiting for the right situation. And when she saw the GoFundMe, she reached out to the girls and offered to donate her car to Ian. And she would not even accept the $700 that they had raised. Instead, she told them to give that money to Ian for car tags and expenses. So at a Secret Santa event for the employees at Buffalo Wild Wings, they surprised Ian with his new-to-him car, and he was so shocked that he thought it was a prank at first. Ian told the local news, this lady who I've never met, never seen, never even talked to, just donated this to me. It makes me really, really happy. This is probably like the best Christmas present I have ever received. And that's just a teenager. Probably like, did your kids say like all the time? That's a teenage, that's teenager <laughs> lingo. This is probably yeah. like the best Christmas present I've ever received. And there's a video online of him receiving the car. So I included it in show notes. If you would like to watch it, you're going to want to grab a tissue. I cried. <laughs> that is a <laughs> great story. Really there are amazing people everywhere helping each other. 
Well, listeners, as Sherry indicated, we need your stories. Send your good news story to connect at lifelessonscommunity.com. We want to hear about companies that have given you exceptional customer service, a shout out to a special someone in your life, tell us an amazing story, or share anything that might be inspirational to fellow listeners. We look forward to hearing from you and sharing your good news in an upcoming episode. So before we get to the life lesson of the week, we always tell you about one of the companies that we love. And today I want to talk about Zoe again, because I just got my results yesterday. Sherry knows this because I was so excited. And it's really funny. You know how I always have everything just like work out for me, like synchronicity wise, like perfectly. So I was doing this whole food plant-based experiment and I was going to do it for 90 days. And I realized yesterday morning that it had been exactly 60 days since I started. I started October 27th. It was December 27th. I don't know if that's 60 days, but two months. Anyway, you you know what I mean. It was the 27th. And I had started it on the 27th of October. I was like, you know, I'm over this. (laughs) I'm tired of not just eating what I want. Yes, I feel better without dairy and meat. But you know what? I also feel better without wine. And I'm not going to never have wine again. And I like dairy and meat. So there. (laughs) And eggs. And I was like, I'm just, I've done all I can do. I'm not going to probably add it back as much as I was before, but I'm going to eat less, but I'm done. So one hour later, I get my Zoe results. <laughs> Bam. <laughs> there they are in my inbox. If you're not sure what Zoe is, you can go to jenstevens.com slash Zoe. I have a blog post about it, but it's basically, they analyze your gut microbiome. You wear a CGM for a couple weeks and you eat these special muffins that they send you that are not delicious before you get excited. Don't get excited. They're not good. But they use these muffins. And you test your blood. You you test your blood after you eat the muffins. Right. And and they're looking to see how well your body clears the blood sugar, how well your body clears the blood fat from this disgusting fatty muffin that you eat or this set of fatty muffins. And this was the second time I'd gone through it. I did it in 2020. So I wanted to see if anything had changed between 2020 and now two years later. And it's amazing. My results have really, really improved. Everything is better. My blood glucose control is better. My blood fat control is better. My gut microbiome is health is better. And I really think a lot of it has to do with the gut. You know, right. a, a healthy gut microbiome, I mean, health begins in the gut. Well, let's think back. When you started intermittent fasting in 2015, you were still eating pretty much the standard American yeah. diet. I was. Yep. And so you had four oh, it was, years. Wait, no, it was 2014. I've lost track of 2014? Okay. Yes, it was 2014. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, you it took you time before you really started changing your diet and including a lot more vegetables and plants into your regular day. So, I mean, really, you just had to plus more years of intermittent fasting and eating well under your belt. So it's not surprising to me that you're... Well, and I wrote cleanish in there too Uh and shifted away from some of the chemicals that I had, you know, some of the things that I shifted away from just as part of cleaning up some of the more processed things that I'd still been eating. So all these little changes have added up. Anyway, today I was like putting in one of my meals what, what you get your results, they give you all these scores for foods. And it was fascinating to me. They have all these things in there now, Sherry, that weren't in there. Like Daily Harvest, for example, uh-huh. it's in there. Like I don't cool. have to try to guess what the meals got in it and get it as right. close as I can. I just find that Daily Harvest bowl. So I put my favorite Daily Harvest bowl in that I like, and it only scored a 45, which is a bummer. On a scale of 1 to 145 is not good. <laughs> I mean, it's like in the, the orange, I have rarely. But listen. I added an avocado to it and it raised it to a 92. 
Yes. So my favorite Daily Harvest Bowl with an avocado on it scores the 92, which means it's really, really good for me when I add the avocado. So that's what's so cool about Zoe. It's not about restricting things or like, darn, I can't eat that Daily Harvest Bowl anymore. Instead, it's like I can eat the Daily Harvest Bowl, but it's better for me if I put an avocado in it. It's almost food combining. It's 100% food combining. Because the way things, like I saw this the two weeks I was wearing the CGM, when you eat things in isolation, you know, it digests differently, right? right? And so when you add the avocado in there, it slows down the digestion. And so then it enters your bloodstream differently. Right. And your blood sugar is raised differently. And that's our goal is to keep from spiking our blood sugar. So all that data from the CGM plus my gut and all of that. Anyway, fascinating. So I'm having fun with it. You know, I hate to track, but I love to learn. Beans are so good for me. That is really exciting. That is exciting. And some cheeses score high. Like mozzarella gets a really high score for me. Well, it's also important to know that it's very individual. Yes. So the foods that are good for you may not mm-hmm. be great for me and, you know, vice versa. We all have different numbers for all the right. foods. Yeah. Right. Because like I know from my scores that when I did it, my fat clearance is better than yours. So I'm probably fattier foods are going to score higher for me yep. than they do for you. And I get a warning if I put too much fat at one time. Like mm-hmm. Zoe says, that's too much fat for you right now. It's not like if I had like five avocados, right. it would go from scoring really high to like, don't eat all that at one time. <laughs> it's too much for my body to clear. Or if you eat too much fat too close to the other fat, it's right. going to tell you to to delay. Yep. You know, like it's too close together. Spread that out a little bit. Yeah. But like so. olive oil scores much higher for me than butter, for example. But mozzarella cheese scores great. So it was really exciting to see, you know, I don't need to like restrict foods because I feel like I need to. Instead, I'm empowered to know what really works well for me with these numbers. Anyway, jenstevens.com slash Zoe. And I want to say for anybody who thinks they might have diet brain, don't do it. You know, you don't want to track. You're not ready for it. Maybe later this might be a good thing for you, but it's really empowering to see how your body does. And now it's time for our life lesson of the week. Recently, my very good friend's mother took a sudden turn health-wise. What started out as a simple UTI required hospitalization and then ended up with her mom leaving the hospital to go home to end-of-life hospice care. At the time, my friend was offered end-of-life palliative care in the hospital where they would care for her mother and provide comfort measures until she passed. The other offer was hospice at home. And thinking that hospice was just like end-of-life hospital palliative care, But at home, she chose hospice, thinking that her mom would be more comfortable at home, as many people are. She quickly realized that she was in over her head and that home hospice was not what she thought it was. Nobody prepared her for what her mom's final hours would look like and what she would witness. And as she called me throughout that first night for moral support, I realized that hospice was not what I thought it was either. And we have both worked in healthcare for decades. And it was then that I realized that if we as healthcare providers don't know how to make informed decisions regarding hospice and end-of-life care, then others probably don't either. I was chatting one day in the Facebook group about this topic, and I was joined in the conversation by Dana Reed, a hospice outreach manager, and uh, she is here with us today. She has spent the past 13 years working in home healthcare and as a hospice advocate. She joins to share her knowledge with us so that if we ever find ourselves in a position where we need to make a decision to call hospice for a loved one, we are better informed to make the right choice for our situation and so that we as a consumer 
know what to expect and what to ask for if we aren't getting the support we need. So with that, thank you, Dana, for joining us today to talk about this very important subject. You're welcome. And it is really important. And I was just, as I was listening to Sherry, and of course, I knew that story while it was happening because Sherry was sharing it with me. And I realized I, I didn't know a thing about, about hospice care either or what questions to ask. So I'm really glad that you're here today because this is a situation that all of us are going to face at some point, I think, in our lives. Overall, Dana, before you get started, what is the lesson you hope to share with our listeners today? I think the biggest thing, especially with end-of-life care and how vulnerable everyone is going through those phases, the biggest lesson would be to make sure that you advocate for your loved one and that you get all the things that you need that should be provided. It's a service industry, so make sure that you're advocating and that you are communicating with the provider that's coming out to the home about any challenges and issues and first give them the opportunity to make it up to you to, to make those changes. But if they're not, you can change agencies and you might get a completely different experience. I think that's really good to know. As I asked questions in the Facebook group about people's you know questions regarding hospice or whatever, it was really a mixed bag. People either had great experiences with hospice or they had really just traumatic experiences, kind of like my friend experienced. So let's just start kind of with how hospice works. And then we will talk more about the family's role in hospice during like end of life care. So just start by telling what is hospice? Hospice is it's funny because you just said it with palliative end of life care. So you said that was offered in the hospital, but not as hospice. And hospice is literally palliative end-of-life care. It's a Medicare benefit, although other insurances do provide a benefit. It initiated with Medicare, and Medicare covers it 100%. But what the difference is between palliative care and hospice care is palliative care is comfort measures while you still hope to aggressively treat or curatively treat, meaning you're doing things to hopefully get better. And hospice care is the end-of-life care, the palliative care that comfort and quality and dignity through you can't do anymore and you're in your end-of-life stages. So there's a lot of things that come along with that. Two physicians, the hospice medical director and one of the physicians caring for the patient, whether it's the physician in the hospital or their primary care provider, oncologist, specialist, certify that based on the decline trajectory that they're on, they could expire in six months. It wouldn't be surprising. Nobody knows when that's going to happen, but they're certifying, yes, it wouldn't be surprising if this person passed away in the next six months. So let's bring in hospice to provide additional support. So the additional support isn't round-the-clock care, which a lot of people need, we understand, and you have to pay privately if you can't provide that yourself, which a lot of people can't afford. So there's a whole gray area there that we won't get into because we can talk for hours about that. But what hospice does provide is nursing, home health aides, social workers, chaplains, volunteers, and then different hospices may have like respiratory therapists or some kind of specialist like that that might help manage a specific diagnosis. And then you also get bereavement support. And 
the idea is if you get hospice at the right time, at the beginning of the diagnosis and not right at the end, you're building relationships with this team and they are helping you through the different stages of end of life. You know, when you first get the news that you're entering that, it's for the patient and the family providing that support. And then as the time passes, you're hitting different stages and they're helping you through those different stages. I've got a real quick question. I'm trying to think all my my conceptions of what I I thought of as hospice. Are there, can you do hospice in your own home or Mm -hmm. also in a plate, like a center, like a hospice center? Or am I completely wrong? Because I feel like my aunt, she just passed away in, it was this year, 2022. I feel like she was not at home, but in a hospice. I went to see her. I think she was in hospice, right? So there is, there's different levels of care for hospice, which we won't go into because that's a lot, but there is hospice in the home or wherever the patient resides, whether that's home or a nursing home, assisted living, personal care facility, something like that, where they're already receiving some additional support. And that's routine hospice. And then there is Um, general inpatient level of care hospice where you need more round-the-clock nursing checking on you for those hospice needs. And that's really geared towards managing symptoms that are out of control, pain, anxiety. And you'll find a lot of hospice houses. I used to have one at the company that I used to work for in Delaware. And you would get some that weren't in that level of care where they needed but they had to be there because there was nowhere else for them to go. But really, typically, if you're in a hospice house, then you should be short-term unmanaged symptoms or very close to death. Now, in the territory that I'm in now, there are hospice houses that aren't attached to a hospice. You just have to be on hospice to be in there. And then there's a daily rate, which actually isn't all that much when I met with this one to pay to be in there and you get round the clock care. And then the hospice provider comes in, any hospice provider can come in and provide those. So it really depends on where you are. Well, that, that explains it. She was in a hospice house and it might've had to do with the fact she got sick really quickly after being, she was older, but lived on her own with my aunt. Lived, mm-hmm. I mean, my, my cousin lived with her. She's my aunt. My cousin lived with her. But they were in a very rural area. So I, I, they were pretty far away from from care. So I think that probably being in a hospice house may have been her only option at that point. Yes. Yeah. So let me ask you, um, a member of the Facebook community, she asked, like, she has a family in a nursing home, but they're approaching what they know to be end of life. And she mm-hmm. asked what the benefit is to getting hospice involved in her case, where can they benefit other than just the nursing home providing end-of-life care? So the benefit in bringing hospice in for nursing home patients, long-term care residents in a nursing home, is that we specialize in end-of-life care. So you're getting additional support on top of what they're already receiving in the nursing home. You're getting additional set of eyes that are dealing specifically with the nurse that comes in, looking at the medications, looking at symptom management, looking at quality of life and everything like that. And then they worked, they should be working together with the team in the nursing home, giving them updates, letting them know. We can also provide training to the nursing home staff to help deal with any of the symptoms that come along with end-of-life care but they're getting additional support through the chaplain coming in. And even if you're not religious, 
chaplain comes in, they'll talk to you not about religion if you're not religious and everything like that. And they're keeping eyes on any changes that they see. A social worker comes in and visits. They also reach out to the family and help with any end-of-life planning that still needs to be done or also any pre-bereavement. There's also a bereavement coordinator. So they also deal with pre-bereavement for the family, but they're also talking to the patient or the patient's family about any wishes that the patient has or anything they feel that they need to complete before the end of their life that's kind of left been left open that they want to close. So they do that as well. And then after the patient passes away, the family receives 13 months of bereavement support if they need it. And that comes in many different ways. A lot of it's just like mailings that come out. But if you need in-person support, they'll come in and help you. Bereavement coordinator previously had to go out and show a woman how to pay her bills, write her checks, how to do everything because her husband always did it. She was in her 80s and now she doesn't know how to keep up with the household bills and everything like that. So the bereavement coordinator went out and showed her how to do that because everyone needs different things after someone passes. And it really depends on what their responsibilities are. But yeah, making sure that everything's in place and that it's less stressful once the patient passes because everything's kind of, you know, reaching out to the funeral home, making those arrangements or assisting with them with those arrangements. And once the person passes, does all support stop? Or, I mean, do they help them get through the whole, like, this was another question people had. Do they help them, like, get through the funeral? And especially if it's an older person who needs help, do they help them with that at all to, like, do funeral planning and that sort of thing? Yeah. So that's part of the bereavement support or the social worker, even after the patient passes, might be coming in or the chaplain coming in and helping set up those things if they're needed. Okay. It sounds like a very important service that everyone should take advantage of when given the opportunity because this is something we don't we don't know how to do. For a lot of us, I mean, hopefully we've very rarely had have these experiences in our life and so take that support that's offered and you said it's covered by Medicare. Medicare covers it 100%. Private insurances also have a hospice benefit, but they follow the same Medicare guidelines, but you may have to get authorization before providing services. They may limit how often someone can come out, or there may be a limit on how long you can use it for. So with Medicare, your first benefit period is six months. And then there's a second benefit period, six months. And then after that, it's like, okay, well, it was supposed to be six months or less. So we're going to look at shorter benefit periods. And then they recertify you. They're looking over everything, making sure that you're still declining. Because one of the things that happens when hospice comes in because of all the additional attention and support that's being provided is that it does slow down the trajectory so that a patient can, I think it's average 23 days. If you get hospice at the right time, then it can extend the patient's life an average of 23 days. And that's it should be comfortable and quality life because that's what you're focused on, making sure that they're living with dignity. And there's no restrictions. You know, if they used to be on a restricted diet, it's the end of life. Let them eat what they want to eat. You know, do what makes them happy. If they want to go outside or if they want to do something, there's a lot of last wishes that hospices will do as well. Yeah, that was a question for me. I know, I mean, like my uncle was put on hospice last March. He's got Mm -hmm. dementia and he's been declining. And my dad had called me and said, you know, they're putting my brother in hospice. And 
like I had some kind of travel, loose travel plans for the spring. And I kind of was like, well, I need to put everything on hold because he's on hospice. He could pass away any day now. Right. Well, that's what I thought, too. It's December and he's still hanging on. So what happens? They just keep renewing. Yeah, they'll recertify them. So if they get recertified and they changed I'm not sure when they changed it because I wasn't in the hospice hospice field at that time. But then once those those first, actually the benefits periods were three months and then three months and then it goes down to two months. Once the first six months have gone past, a doctor, and it's usually the medical director from the hospice, goes out and does a face-to-face to look at them and do an evaluation to make sure that they're still hospice appropriate. And just to let you know, Sherry, when I worked for the previous hospice, we had a patient die on the three-year anniversary of her coming on to services. Wow. So it is very different. To give you an example, my grandmother was on service. She wasn't declining anymore. She was kind of considered custodial care. She was bedbound and she just needed a lot of care. And the case manager would say to me, Dana, we're going to have to discharge her. And I know that your family really relies on the support. And then honest to goodness, every time she needed to be researched. she would get a UTI. And that is enough to research because it's a decline. Right. <laughs> and it's a change and they need, and it needs management. So she was on from September to May, whereas my grandfather came on on a Tuesday and passed away on a Saturday. Yeah. My aunt wasn't there long. So I had that yeah. same misconception that Sherry did, that it means end is near, very near. And it, right. I, it it doesn't necessarily mean that. That's important. No. And if you get it at the right time, if it's identified at the right time, you really have that six months, maybe more to build those relationships and achieve the goals. And the staff is able to identify what your needs are through this process and help you with them. But when... So I, I suspect timing may have been an issue in my friend's experience with hospice. Her mother went into the hospital on a Monday with a UTI. About 10, 11 days later, she was discharged home. They basically, like on day nine, said there's nothing we can do for her. And they found out while she was in the hospital, she had a cervical spine fracture. So at some point she had fallen and Mm -hmm. nobody knew. Mm -hmm. And she wasn't nowhere near stable enough for surgery. So basically on Friday, they came in and just said, well, she's declining rapidly. There's nothing we do. We can transfer her to this other unit or you can take her home on hospice. And by three o'clock on Friday, she made the decision to take her home. Mm -hmm. At nine o'clock, they dropped her off at her house. During that six hours, it was a whirlwind of getting a hospital bed brought in and oxygen and, you know, equipment and getting her meds. And then the nurse came in, sat down, did her assessment and left and just left my friend with this bag of meds and was like, here, give her meds every two hours and I'll see you sometime tomorrow. Well, her mother ended up passing at 7 a.m. So she had her home for all of 10 hours. Mm -hmm. And first of all, she had no idea that she would be doing the -the round-the-clock care. So here she is. She's exhausted. She's been in the hospital for 10 days. She hasn't slept. Now she is like monitoring her mom, giving her meds, watching the clock, checking her breathing. And that was a lot for her. Is there a time where maybe it's not appropriate to involve hospice like that? If they're too fragile to transfer, because then they can die en route and nobody wants that, that's traumatic. Uh But what you're telling me just sounds very, I don't know what agency she used. I don't know where she lives, but my background's state of Delaware 
Delaware County, Pennsylvania, Chester County, Pennsylvania, and Central Pennsylvania is where I am now. And every hospice that I've worked for and every hospice that I know about has liaisons. So when the referral is made from the hospital to the hospice, there's a liaison attached to that. And all the liaisons I know reach out to the family and explain in detail the services that they're going to be getting. Because so that's, that's where we need to, as family members, we need to ask questions. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, th- I think it's very important to note that Sherry and her friend both work in healthcare mm-hmm. and and didn't know what they needed to ask. Oh my gosh. So, I mean, she's calling me and I'm like, what? They just left you there? What? And I'm like, how are you going to sleep? And she's like, I, I can't. I have to stand here. If you don't work with the geriatric population, then you really have no idea. So my mm-hmm. aunt's been a nurse my entire life. And she's never worked in the geriatric field. And when it came to my grandmother and when it comes to stuff, she just, she doesn't know. She's never worked in nursing homes. She never worked for home health, right. hospice. She worked more surgery, doctor's offices type things like that. And it really is a different kind of healthcare when you're working with this geriatric population in the extent of skilled nursing facilities, long-term right. care facilities, home health, hospice, because you're seeing different sides of things rather than just physician checkups or you know surgeries and stuff like that. So, I mean, one of the big things is like if someone, if you're referred to hospice and no one from that hospice made contact with you to talk about, number one, what's going on? What's the situation? Mm-hmm. What are your goals? What are you looking to obtain? What are your needs? And then explaining the hospice benefit and how it may or may not fit all of those needs and what you might need to do to supplement for that. Because like I said, we don't provide round-the-clock care in the home. And that's a common yeah. misconception. So, yeah. Right. You should ask for another agency. There's more than one hospice. I meet with people all the time that don't know that there's more than one hospice. I didn't know. There are tons of hospice agencies everywhere. My current territory, there's at least 13. Okay. So would it be safe to say that hospitals sort of have the agency that they work with just because they know the person and, or do they work with multiple agencies? So you will find that hospitals will have a preferred provider that they like to refer to. And I'm not quite sure what the reason for that is because they so seldomly actually work one-on-one with that provider. They may have a different connection with them. It may be a healthcare partner of theirs. They they fall under the same umbrella. One in my area is connected to the palliative team in the hospital, so they use that. But what you will find is hospitals are required to offer choice. Okay, good to know. They shouldn't just be giving you one name. They should at least be giving you a few names or a list of providers for you to choose from. Is it the consumer's right to talk to multiple agencies and determine which one they feel comfortable with? Yes. I mean, that's what I always recommended back over 10 years ago when I did this. Almost everyone met with at least three agencies unless they already knew they wanted to use an agency because they've had a good prior experience or they know someone that had a prior experience would meet with at least three agencies. I'm not seeing that as much now. It's Mm -hmm. kind of, here's a name. Okay, let's go with that. But it really is, these are people working with people. So you have to make sure that you trust the person that you're meeting with and that they're not just trying to sell you something, Mm -hmm. but you trust them and you believe what they're saying. 
but also get a feel for what that agency is like. And it's okay to ask, like, what do you do differently than some of the other agencies around here, some of your competitors? Or, I mean, I just, I tell my liaisons, always find out what their needs are. Find First and foremost, ask what happened, what's going on? And then always, you're usually talking to the family member, not the patient. How are you doing with this? Because they're going through their own grief and trauma and dealing with this information. And then what are your needs? Because if you find that they don't have any support at home, then you would probably say like to your friend, then I suggest that you stay and do the palliative program here Mm -hmm. so that you have the support that you need and you're able to rest. But it depends on the patient's goals too. Let's say your friend's mom just really wanted to go home. She wanted to be at home in her final hours. But It's really identifying what the goals are and what the needs are and doing what's right for the patient and the family. Right. Yeah. And I think she was in an unfortunate situation and many people would be in that she's an only child Mm -hmm. and her father wasn't up to taking care of her mother. Her father's Mm -hmm. older than her mom was. And not to mention deaf. So he, I mean, like <laughs> he can't hear. He do so it. she's like, he he wouldn't be able to hear that she was, you know gurgling and needing right. her head lifted up. And so she had no, re- like no relief. Right. Right. So my understanding now that I didn't have before is this is sort of a family process. Like mm-hmm. you have to have strong support and help. If you're doing mm-hmm. the in-home hospice, you really do, don't you? And the if hospital you're... should have set up a little bit, should have talked to them a little bit more about the discharge plan and made sure it was a safe discharge. Yeah. To me, it sounds like your friend either used an agency that's not that great. It's not a five-star agency. <laughs> well, I don't know because it could have just been the nurse that was coming out. Right. right. You know, right. Um, especially if she passed that quickly, we always try to notify family. You, There are signs when you're in like your last 72 hours. We increase visits in our last right. 72 hours to make sure that the support's there for the family, mm-hmm. for the patient. The nurse will stay a little bit longer. They can't stay all day. They have other patients they need to stay, but we'll stay a little bit longer. If something's needed, they may call. If more support's needed, they may call the social worker and say, I need you to go by and spend some time with the family for that. But there are definitely signs, and that's when we will start reaching out to the family and say, it's imminent. Death is imminent. It's time. It's time to come. If you're coming, you need to come. Right. This is what I'm, I'm learning ask a lot of questions mm-hmm. always and make sure you know the plan and and in case of emergency and what do i do and mm-hmm. how do i get support quickly and and really know and don't be rushed into any decisions i think that's important i think that's very important. important too yeah so if a family just can't provide round the clock care and the hospital's saying hey we can't do anything for your family member So we have to discharge them. What happens then? So there is a benefit, a level of care called respite level of care. And it's allotted five days in a facility where I don't know how it would work if they're just coming onto service, but you could probably make it work. What you do is like a nursing home that the agency, the hospice agency is contracted with for respite care. The patient would be able to go there for five days under that respite level of care, they'll still get hospice when they're in there, but the facility will be providing the -the round-the-clock care for them. Gotcha. Okay. It can only be used five days at once, but there is no set amount of time as how often you can use it. That's always like a gray area. 
So if it's the medical opinion of their their medical team that end of life is imminent, that is when that could be employed. It could. It's usually for caregiver burnout or someone's been on service, but there's like a vacation coming up mm-hmm. and they need gotcha. something like that. Or they need to make plans to get now it's harder to take care of mom, dad, aunt, whoever. It's right. hard to take care and we need to get some additional support set up. But we still need to live our regular lives while we're doing it. Let's put them in respite. We have five days to get a plan figured out. Something like that. It's meant to be a respite for the caregivers, those that are providing it's care. It's a, a caregiver yeah. break. Right? Yeah. Or we used it for my grandmother because everyone <laughs> ran out of their vacation days or holiday was coming up because they kept saying, we don't think she's going to make it to Christmas. And I told you, she died in May. So they were like, she's still here and we all have to go back to work. Oh my God, what are we going to do? Right. We need to find some additional support or come up with a plan. So they sent her to respite for five days, figured out a plan between them, but also provide, hired a private duty caregiver to help because my uncle was going to be working from there during the day to help change. And then there was a rotation for evenings and other family support to come in. So it helps you, it gives you that time to come up with a plan and put it in place or just, this has just been a lot. I just need a break and then I want to bring mom back and I'll be refreshed and I'll be able to take care of her better again. So here's an important question. So like after my friend's mom passed, she was talking to another, a friend of hers who is a hospice nurse um, at the funeral. And she was talking about the final hours and whatever. And that nurse said, oh, you like she could have been more aggressively medicated that she didn't feel like her medication management was handled correctly and that she could have pushed more meds, but yet she was told you have to follow this schedule specifically. And then yet there was a person in our Facebook group. She was disappointed that both times she was in hospice, both of her loved ones were what she felt like over-medicated and incoherent and unable to like communicate. So like, what is the goal of medication management during the final days? The medication management. So a lot of people have that opinion about hospice. They just dope them up. Mm -hmm. And so that they're, they're just laying there and they can't do anything. It really depends if you, again, advocate, if you feel that your loved one is not getting the quality of life that they should be getting because they're being over-medicated, you feel that they're being over-medicated, you need to talk to the nurse case manager about that or call into the office and talk to the clinical team in the office about that. They can adjust the meds. The main goal is they're trying to make sure that the patient is comfortable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to be in pain or be agitated for the last days of their life. So based on what they're looking at, but everyone has different tolerance levels for medications. Mm -hmm. So if that's the way that you truly feel, then you need to feel empowered to speak up and advocate for them and to, and guess what? If they're not doing what you ask, if they're not even willing to try, you can change agencies. Mm -hmm. If you're unhappy, you can change agencies. You're not on this hospice forever. If you're not happy and you decide you don't want to do hospice anymore, you can revoke from hospice and not have hospice anymore. Hospice does cover all the medications related to the diagnoses and pain and comfort, any medical equipment that you need. I forgot to say this at the beginning, whether it's an oxygen concentrator or hospital bed, a commode, anything like that, they do cover all of that. 
but you do have the right to end hospice services whenever you want. And that doesn't mean you can't have them again. That means that you're taking a break from that, it. Yeah. If you well, want. that means a month later, you can be like, you know what? This is really hard. Let's bring hospice back in. And you can always try a different agency then. If you're unhappy, but you like, you need the services, tell them you want to transfer to a different agency. Interview other agencies. Your, Sherry, your friend, I really feel for her. And I think I told you this when we were messaging. Like, she should have been told there is an on-call nurse available after hours. There is always someone available after hours. So when her mom's symptoms got worse or she didn't know what to do, she should have been able to call into that office for Mm -hmm. that agency, talk to them about what's going on. The beauty of hospice, which it can, I mean, it can be frightening for some people, but is that you don't have to wait for a nurse to get there. A nurse can tell you over the phone, increase medication by this much. Give this medication to your loved one. That way you don't have to wait until someone gets there. Let me know how it goes. I'm on my way out to see you, but give this to them now. And then I'll be there if nothing changes or something changes dramatically. Call me back. I'm on my way. But there's always on-call nursing available to come out and see them. That's what we want you to call. You get a lot of people that call 911, then they go back in the hospital. Then you have to discharge them from services and then readmit them when they come back. Oh, yeah. She was ready to call 911 at at 1 a.m. and have her taken back to the hospital because she was so overwhelmed and didn't know Mm -hmm. what to do. She had every right to do that, too. But the nurse that came out should have told her, call us if you need anything. Call us if something changes with your mom, for sure. So we had a really important question in the Facebook group. Somebody asked, once a person enters hospice, do they go off all other meds? Do they still keep other doctor's appointments and such, or does all other health care stop? So that's a common misconception, too. When you come on hospice, let's say you come on for cardiac disease, CHF. Mm-hmm. All of your cardiac medications are going to be now be covered by hospice. Anything relating to comfort is going to be covered by hospice. Let's say you're also a diabetic and you have other medications, prescription medications. You still get them the same way that you normally would. Hospice doesn't cover it, but your Medicare Part B still covers it or C, D, whichever one covers it. So they cover the reason you're on hospice. The primary diagnosis. And the comfort care. Everything that's related to the primary diagnosis and the comfort care. As far as doctors, hold on, I want to get into this too. So that depends. What is the reason for going to the other doctors? Because now we're managing your care at home and making sure that you're comfortable and everything. So we don't say you can't go to your doctor, but there usually isn't a need. If you're going to a doctor to have exploratory treatment done, to have like a CAT scan done or something like that, then that doesn't align with hospice goals. Hospice goals are you're done with, you know, aggressive treatment, curative treatment, exploratory treatment and stuff like that. So it really depends on what the goals are and what the reason is for, for going to the doctor. Now, if you fall and you think something's broken, then yes, you're going to go to the doctor to see, right? To see what's going on with that. Or if there's something different. But as far as like regular appointments, typically not because there isn't really a reason anymore. Your primary care provider has the choice to whether continue overseeing your care through hospice 
or letting the medical director see over for the hospice overseeing your care. Some will do it jointly. It depends. You know, some primary care doctors are like, look, the medical director specializes in hospice and end of life care. I'm okay with handing it over. And then typically, it's not that they don't care about the patient anymore. Typically, the liaison or whoever comes from that hospice, like goes to that account, will give updates, or we also fax over updates on the patient to the doctor. So they're not completely out of the loop, but okay, you don't stop being a patient of theirs e- either. So I guess, okay, so I think a common misconception is with a uh, hospice means you're withdrawing care. But what I'm understanding is you're not really withdrawing care, you're continuing care, you're adding comfort measures what you are stopping is any curative measures. Would that be kind of a correct summary? Yes. Okay. Or there's no other options. There are no more curative measures. Nothing else can be done. This is pretty much, we've already tried everything and it's still not working. So maybe it's time to call in hospice and you can still keep using whatever it is to manage symptoms so that you're comfortable, but it's not slowing down. It's not making you better. You're still declining. So something like that. Okay. Well, so I think it really comes down to, like Jen said earlier, advocating, asking Mm -hmm. questions, and remember that you are the consumer. You have a choice. Mm -hmm. I think people really forget they have a choice in healthcare. And I think that comes down to end-of-life care as well. You know, you have a choice. And you're scared. I mean, this is the scariest time. I mean, someone you love is dying. right? And you've just been told, this is it. This person will die within the next six months. And you're just trying to get through all the emotions of that. And now you have to make decisions about care. And it's really easy to get swept along in something without knowing that you should be asking questions. Mm -hmm. So now is the time to talk about it before you're anywhere close to this. Well, and honestly, I'm going to say, I think you feel helpless when this all happens. Mm -hmm. But knowing that you have the, let's say, the right to take charge and help manage this, I think is going to help you feel less helpless. Mm-hmm. And down the road, you're going to feel more confident in your decision and what transpired and, you know, know that you gave it your best rather than sort of just going along for the ride and then later saying, I wish I would have. You're in the driver's seat, not the passenger right. seat of this right. process. Yeah, yeah, and to speak to that, and Jen, just like you said, when you get that, when you get that news, I equate it to is being underwater. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like everything's foggy and you can't really hear. You're not processing things. Starts stuff starts to be like, wah, wah, you know, like you're mm-hmm. underwater, right? And it's very overbearing. So I've been trying to talk to physicians and clinicians about, hey, let us talk to them before they need it. They're going to be more receptive to the information, at least knowing what the benefit is, what it's going to get, because then they're only going to pick up on key, like certain things here and there when they've just received this news. And now they receive this news and now they have to figure out, oh my God, what's next? And it's very overwhelming. Let us talk to them about it. When you start seeing that they're kind of declining, hey, you don't need this yet. We're not there yet, but let's have someone talk to you about it. So when it is time, you already know what to expect and what to look for. I think that's great also just because then the patient is in a position where they can say what they want as well, Mm -hmm. rather than waiting till they're sick and not able to make rash decisions at that point. 
Absolutely. You've left us with so much to think about. And I've learned so much Me just too. in preparing this episode and talking with you today. So I, you know, I hope our listeners have as well, because this was really a hot topic. I know you saw the post I made in Facebook mm-hmm. and it was a really hot topic over the last few days. So mm-hmm. I really hope we're able to dispel some myths and misunderstandings and and help people realize that, as Jen said, they are in the driver's seat. Advocate, advocate, advocate always. So thank you. Thank you, Dana. And now it's time for our listener-led lesson. It might be a life hack, a book recommendation, a special recipe, a kitchen tip, or anything along those lines. Today's listener-led lesson comes from Jackie Pearson. She says, when I was young, I constantly blamed my victim stance in life on the fact that I grew up with divorced parents and an alcoholic mother. Most of us live in the guilt of the past or the anxiety of the future and not in the present. Living in the present is what mindfulness is. And before I retired as a marriage and family therapist, mindfulness came to be the core of a lot of therapy approaches. It's also called living in the now. I'm in my 80s now, and I can honestly say that because of my own therapy and other life experiences, it's as if my childhood wasn't mine. I don't live there and haven't for a long time, and I am grateful. A quote I was told years ago, healing begins when we give up hope for a different past is so very true. Yeah, that is really powerful. Thank you, Jackie. That is a powerful quote. Healing begins when we give up hope for a different past. At the end of each show, we share a motivational quote from a listener. And today's quote comes from Ann Boyce. And it's actually very timely for today's subject. The quote is by Harriet Beecher Stowe. The bitterest tears shed over a grave are for words left unsaid and deeds left undone. And this quote made me think of our interview with Dr. Harley Rothbart on episode 34. He actually wrote a book during the early days of the COVID pandemic called No Regrets Living. And that book really struck a chord with me personally, because that is exactly how I try to live my life in a way that I won't regret. And every choice I make, I make willingly and with purposeful intention. And really that intention is just not to make choices that I will feel bad about later, that I'll regret. I always think, can I sleep tonight if I do this or if I say this or whatever? I speak honestly. I say what needs to be said, but never from a place of anger or hurt, but honesty. And I think it's important to feel empowered to speak the messages that are in our heart, make our wishes known, and do the things that our heart is driving us to do in this life. Then when our time is coming to a close, we can go with peace in our heart and our family can grieve us with peace in theirs. So I really liked that quote. Came in at a great time. Yeah, I think so too. The bitterest tears shed over a grave are for words left unsaid and deeds left undone. And that's a powerful way to end. Thank you so much for joining us today. We would love to have you join us in the private Life Lessons VIP community. Go to lifelessonscommunity.com slash VIP to become a VIP podcast supporter. Your membership ensures that we can keep bringing you episodes of the Life Lessons podcast each week. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And if you haven't already, please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast app. Reviews really do help us reach new listeners. We're a community-driven podcast, and here's how you can be a part of our show each week. Do you have a story to share for our good news segment, a listener-led lesson, or a motivational quote that means something to you? 
Or do you have an area of expertise that you would like to share as our featured guest for the week as we present our weekly life lesson? Email us at connect at lifelessonscommunity.com or use the link in show notes and then listen each week to hear your story or tip. Until next week, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.